apologizes. He's giving a defense. He's speaking on behalf of his ministry to the Corinthians who had begun to listen to false apostles. Here now the reading of the word of Almighty God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost." in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verses 1 through 7 of this fourth chapter, the apostle speaks of his constancy, that he did not faint or give out, that he was sincere, that he was a man of integrity, both him and his fellow laborers. He makes this apology, this defense. Notice verse 1, as we have received mercy, we faint not. The mercy of God is what sustained him in his specific calling. Though he had many troubles, the ministry God gave him, that caused him in that mercy of God to give him that service not to faint. Notice he renounced, he says, this hidden things of dishonesty. 
We looked at this last week in the shame that the apostle spoke of. We have shame for our former conduct because those things are in the dark. The hidden things, those are what liars use, things that are not open and honest. So he says, we have renounced those dishonest practices. We have not walked, he says, in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. The word of God can be mishandled. People can lie with the Bible. They can use it in such a way that they have their own ideas they'd like to impress on you rather than what's actually written in the text. Whole methods of interpreting the Bible have been built with craftiness and deceitful handling of the word of God. We'd like to buttress our traditions, my nice ideas, my feelings, my supposed worldview. I'll say, well, the Bible teaches my worldview. See, here's this proof proof text. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. In many cases, people approach the Bible in that way. Paul says, we don't do that. We show or manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. We make clear public announcements. We disclose openly what we believe. There's no hidden meaning. Some churches will have a theology for the masses, a theology for their priests, and the theology for their bishops, and they're not the same. They're different. Paul says, what I believe and what I teach from Scripture, you can know, all of you can know the same things that I teach. Because I say it openly, it's not far-fetched. You don't take the words of Scripture and twist them to your own meaning, or your own destruction, rather. The teaching of Scripture must be open and public. You must be able to easily trace your beliefs from what you say you believe to the text itself. Not say, here's my belief and I'd like the Bible to speak my language. No. We must speak the language of the Bible. It must inform our beliefs, our doctrines. We must have an easily traceable opening and alleging from the text. The application should be obvious from the text itself. It should not be far-fetched. So I note there is an honest way and a deceitful way of handling Scripture. The Bible is handled honestly when the native sense and meaning of the words, the drift and scope of the passage are taken into consideration. Then everyone can publicly see this is the truth that comes right out of the Bible. You remember how Paul would go into the synagogue. This is exactly what he did. He opened the text Then he made allegations and applications from the text. And everybody could see the Bereans could go home or come back to the synagogue and read the Bible throughout the week and say, are these things so? And he commended himself to their conscience. He could teach them directly from the scriptures. Let us then handle the scriptures honestly, both me as a minister and you all as believers. Not with far-fetched allegories not with prejudice over the text where it must say my beliefs, but rather handling it clearly, interpreting an unclear text by a clear text and not vice versa. If our gospel, he says, is hid, so if he, even if he publicly teaches, even if he's a man of integrity who does not faint, there will be people who won't believe. And this word for hid means to be veiled, Remember in chapter 3, 
They had a veil over the face of Moses. They had a veil over their heart, lest they should see the glory of gospel truth in Jesus' face there in the reading of the Old Testament. They have this veil upon their hearts, and some will have the gospel veiled or hidden from them. Who does the veiling? The God of this world, he says. Satan is also called the prince of the power of the air. He is worshipped as a god with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, with lying signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. Contrast that with Christ, verse 4, who is the image of God. Here we see that the apostle is contrasting the old creation of Adam with a new creation in Christ. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Christ is the image of God. So the salvation that comes from Christ is like God commanding light at the beginning, causing a supernatural work of renovation in our souls. And because that's the case, how could the apostle preach himself as the Lord? We preach not ourselves, he says, but Christ Jesus as Lord. It's very emphatic in the original but we preach Christ Jesus, Lord. That's how he puts it. Christ is the master of our faith. Christ is our king and the only one who can command us what we, to, what we should believe and what we should do. Men are not to be the lords over our consciences, not even the apostle Paul. If he showed up and preached to us, we couldn't make him the lord of our conscience. No, God himself, as he's revealed himself in his word, is our Lord. Do not tie your faith or your conscience to any minister, but only and always to the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking in the scriptures. Men are fallible if they preach an infallible truth. Yes, not for their sakes, but for God's sake. Listen, but at all times examine what you hear. And only bind yourself to Christ as the Lord of your faith and conscience. Notice verse 6, the same omnipotent power where God said, let there be light and there was light. So he has commanded the glorious gospel to shine in our hearts. It's the same supernatural almighty power at work. Contrast that with Moses. They didn't even want to see the glowing of his face. But the face of Christ sends forth salvation. We have this treasure, he then says, in earthen vessels, tending to crack, not solid and reliable. You drop an earthen vessel, what happens? It's like our glass. It shatters into pieces. So those who hold the message are not the point. The point is the message itself, that the excellency of the power might be not of the Apostle Paul, not of some minister who speaks the word, but of God himself. Not of us, he says. The gospel then is about Christ and his lordship, his almighty power, his glorious person, and therefore the ministry of the church is one of humble service, not of lordly rule. Have you ever heard of a basilica? That's the place where the king reigns. Do you know who they consider to be the kings of the churches? Who sits in a basilica? A bishop does. Christ says, my bishops are servants. We, Paul says, are servants for Christ's sake. Your servants, he says, your bond slaves. 
the church's ministry is not about men or their notions. Now notice, when they said the bishops were kings, whose rules for worship and government did they follow? Christ's? No. Because they were the kings of the church. They could make laws to bind the conscience. There is no such man on earth. There are no such men in heaven. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, God in the flesh. To put another in his place is to deny his incarnation and say, no, we do not accept the unique God-man. Verses 8 through 12, notice their courage, their patience under suffering and the relief of their sufferings. The apostle says they are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Now here he's going to prove that the excellency of the power is not of Paul. It's not of the ministers. It's of God himself. Because if we are troubled on every side, how do we not get distressed? How is it that we're not pressed down out of measure? Well, it's because it's God's power at work, not mine. That's what he's saying. He's perplexed, but not in despair. This is actually a play on words here or a verbal paradox. The word for perplexed is the same word as that for despair, except the word despair has a prefix X. So in one case, aparumenoi, we are perplexed. We don't know what to think. But we're not ex aparumenoi. We're not completely and totally unable to think. Why? Because of the power of God. We're persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. Men may hate us. They may chase us down, kill us like sheep for the slaughter. But has God abandoned us? Nay, in these things we are more than conquerors, the apostle says. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are cast down. What happens when somebody gets cast off of a roof? Do they survive the fall? Are they destroyed? Yes. That's the natural course of things. We are cast down, he says, but not destroyed. How is that? He shall give his angels charge over thee, he says. The excellency of the power is of God and not of us. Then verse 10, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. This is the main verb. Sometimes you'll hear me talk about participles. It's a verbal adjective. And it describes the main verb in a sentence or a context. Now, everything leading up to verse 10 is in the form of a participle. And this means the following. We are troubled, not distressed. Those are participles. We are perplexed, not in despair, also participles. Persecuted and not forsaken, cast down and not destroyed. Those all describe how we bear about. How is it that we carry around the dying of the Lord Jesus? Well, all the things he just described. The resurrection power of Christ through the very experience of persecution, of distress and trouble, of despair, not coming upon him, though he's perplexed. How does that happen? Because he bears around in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The Christian life contains suffering. We can be troubled and even crushed by trials. 
We can be perplexed and confused. We can be persecuted and cast down. But all these tell us one thing. We are united to Jesus Christ. We bear in our body His sufferings, His death. That's what empowers us. Not ourselves. Not these clay pots but the excellency of the glory of God manifested in these very sufferings. We are supernaturally upheld by Christ's resurrection life. This is why our troubles don't lead us to despair. That's what he's saying. The Christian life is not a natural life where everything goes according to the powers of nature. No. The Christian life is a supernatural life because we are united to Jesus Christ. Let us then see our sufferings in the light of God's word of promise made to us in Jesus Christ, secured to us through his resurrection. Let us use our sufferings and troubles to draw our minds away from ourselves. That's what nature does. Do you know that? Do you know why a baby cries? Because their suffering says, help me, focus on me. It's the order of nature, isn't it? We're all concerned about ourselves, our own problems, our own feelings. Why do dogs whimper? Same thing in humans and in animals. Our feelings say, my sufferings mean you should focus on me and I'm going to make it troublesome unless you do. That's what dogs whimper for. I'm going to make you feel pain in your ear till you do what I want. Babies cry for the same reason. We do the same thing, even adults, when we suffer. Help me! Focus on me! No, that's the natural order. This is a supernatural order where the excellency of the glory of Paul's sufferings, he says, is like Jesus Christ dying in me. It's his resurrection power. The focus then on our sufferings should draw us away from ourselves toward the power of Jesus Christ. This treasure we have is in earthen vessels. We are weak, we are frail, we are broken, but Christ's power overcomes all. Verse 11, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. This is the purpose This is the reason. Why does God give suffering to his people? So that the life of Jesus should be manifest in our dying flesh. Now the Corinthians didn't want to live that way. They wanted a gospel of prosperity and worldly success. And they looked at the Apostle Paul and they said, Well look, you're suffering all the time, Paul. You have a disease in your eyes. You're crushed by rocks. They try to stone you. They leave you for dead. That's not the kind of gospel we want. And so the false apostles came and promised them your best life now. And what does Paul have to offer? Stoning, beating, persecution, eye disease. Is that what you want? No. That's not what the natural man wants, but Paul says, we have the same spirit of faith as you have. Death works in us, but life works in you, but we have the same faith. We believe in the same Christ. Christ shall raise us up by Jesus and present us with you. You're not going to be at the resurrection without us. 
You may despise me. You may think ill of me, he says, but I will be there together with you. Verse 16, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. This is called sanctification. Yes, Paul is suffering. Yes, he is perplexed. Yes, he is in pain. Yes, he is in trouble and persecution. But that's the point. God is renewing him in his inner man every single day. And he says, this is why we do not faint. This word faint means to become tired of doing something. I'm sick of this. I'm done with this. I'm throwing in the towel. How did he not throw in the towel with all the troubles he had? Because, he said, he kept his mind fixed on this truth, that Christ is renewing him in the inner man, that Christ at last will perfect his body in glory, and that all these things work together for his good. Let us then draw our minds heavenward. Let us fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, not upon the decaying of our bodies, the troubles, the distresses, the famines, the nakedness, the sword, or any such thing. Let us fix our minds on the renewal of grace within us and our future inheritance in the everlasting kingdom. Notice verse 17, he makes a general principle. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, these afflictions are not light in themselves. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you should pretend like your experiences don't exist and say, oh, reality doesn't exist. No. When a loved one dies, you don't pretend like it's time to celebrate and party. You mourn the loss of that person that you cared for. We have sufferings, but he says they are light by comparison. When you think of them and you put them in the scales... Christ is working an exceeding eternal weight of glory through these sufferings, but my body doesn't like it. How do the scales tip? Which one weighs more to you? That's what he's saying. By comparison, our afflictions are light. Westminster Annotations. Afflictions of the godly are not light in themselves, but comparatively to the infinite and eternal weight of heavenly glory which our affliction worketh for us, not by any merit of ours, but out of God's mere grace for Christ's sake, Romans 8, 17 and 18. Then he reminds us of one final truth, verse 18, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This keeps our priorities and our vision straight and focused. Those things down here on the earth, as in Pilgrim's Progress, you remember the muckraker? He's focused so much on the muck of his existence that he can't look up and see the crowns above him. That's what he's saying. When we focus our eyes on the crown above, when we see the things that are eternal, when we look and gaze upon those, what are these afflictions that we experience? They're light. They're transitory. They only last for a time. They're not eternal. The wicked will suffer eternal vengeance in flames of fire, will we? No. 
So the worst sufferings we're ever going to have are now, and God's design is to bring us to everlasting glory even through those sufferings. And thus far the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 